Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. There are a lot of one-year anniversaries related to the pandemic happening right now. We just passed the one-year mark of when the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a global pandemic. Tomorrow, March 13th, is the one-year anniversary of when Breonna Taylor, a Black woman sleeping in her apartment, was shot and killed by police officers in Louisville, Kentucky. Breonna's murder was one of the many in this past year that sparked widespread protests in support of Black lives. These deaths devastated so many more people than just those who knew them personally. Dr. Amber Nelson, an assistant professor of clinical psychology at George Fox University, talks about this impact as collective grief. Collective grief can really refer to the reaction of any group bigger than one person to any loss. While collectively, we as a world are grieving all of the losses that have occurred over the past year, in this conversation, Dr. Nelson and I focus on the collective grief of communities who hold marginalized identities. This grief is the grief that someone has died, and it's also the grief of what that person's death symbolizes or represents. It's the grief of knowing that someone who shares an element of your identity was killed because of that element of shared identity. It's the grief of feeling like you're at risk. It's the grief of the loss of safety. Grief that sparks the thought, this could happen to me. In our conversation, Dr. Nelson shares both her personal and professional experiences with carrying and supporting collective grief. Prior to her current work as a professor at George Fox University, Dr. Nelson worked as a pediatric psychologist at Johns Hopkins Children's Center with children facing life-limiting illnesses. Amber, I'm so glad we can finally have this conversation for Grief Out Loud. I know we were stymied a few times by weather events and car issues and all kinds of things. So I'm just glad we're, we can have this conversation today. Yes, me too. Thanks for having me, Jana. And Amber, in your earlier career experiences, you were working with kids who had advanced serious illnesses. And just wondering, what did you learn from them about grief? You know, it's such a good question. Um, I think that the biggest thing that I learned from them is just that how complicated grief is. You know, I I think coming into the field and experiencing my own grief and, and walking through things with friends and family, um, you see it from one perspective, but really seeing it through the eyes of um, young people, you just see really how complicated it is and how many layers there are. But also, I, I really saw them leaning into the time that they had to live. Um, and so there was just this beautiful contrast of seeing the, the complicated nature of what grief is and how it plays out in one's life. Um, but seeing these young folks finding these ways to say, yes, um, I might have you know, cystic fibrosis, I might have um, sickle cell, I might have a cancer, I might have these things that are life limiting. And also, what is it going to look like for me to 
really enjoy life? What what is it going to mean for me to make the most of the time that I have on earth? And um, I really loved seeing that and seeing what does it take for, and it took a lot less for them to really be able to figure that out and, and, and get to that point than it did for the rest of their family, for other people, older people that were in that same place, even those that have had a lot more life to live. And so being able to see them come to that place, I think was the biggest lesson for me, again, around the, the, the complicated nature of grief, but also man, life is a gift. And how do we um, maximize our time here? I think stereotypically, one might imagine a child being like, I want to visit all of the Disney parks with my time here on earth, or I want to travel and climb mountains. And I'm wondering, what is there an example or two of maybe that might have been surprising to you of where kids found that value in the way that they really wanted to invest in their time that they had here on the planet? There were several kids that definitely wanted to do Disneyland. That's like the number one request. (laughs) (laughs) Number one request, Disneyland or Disney World or um, Disney World, you know, in in another country. But um, I had had a kiddo that wanted to have a music studio built to produce music and to learn how to like play instruments and, and to do all of this in the time that they had left. And that was, that was what he wanted. And it was really interesting to see, you know, he had about the diagnosis or prognosis was five years. And that's what he wanted to do with his time was to learn instruments and to record music. And it was really a way for him to leave something behind for his family to see, um, to have these um, memories that he left with his family of him learning and producing and having music that they could enjoy and remember him by. And I just thought, wow, how cool for this like 12 year old to say that this was this was the thing that he wanted and this is like how he wanted to use his time was something that was fun for him something he was passionate about for sure but it was more about how could he leave something for his family yeah to even at 12 be thinking about how do I build and leave a legacy which is a a word I think we often associate with folks who have had a lot more years that they have lived of creating that legacy and that your time can be very short and you can still want to leave something behind or leave your mark. Yeah. So Amber, I know we started talking about kids and life-limiting illnesses and what you learned about grief, but what we really wanted to talk about today is, is this idea that I heard from you. I tuned into a conversation that you were part of and you were talking about collective grief. And I wondered if you could just like briefly define that for us. Yeah, you know, um, collective grief can come out in lots of different ways. Um, the most predominant tends to be um, around uh, racialized experiences, um, experiences um, like our current racial pandemic, right, where we have this insurgence of highly publicized deaths of of folks within a specific community and um, the experience of the rest of the community based on 
what they're experiencing, what they're seeing. But it's not even just, it's not just that, right? That tend, has been one of the major areas in which collective grief really comes out. Um, but we all right now are really experiencing collective grief and that collective grief coming out of this sense of destabilization of our world, right? There's a sense of like communal or, or um, collective grief as we watch our work and our healthcare and our education and our economic systems, kind of all, all these systems that we really depend on start to destabilize. And all of those things um, that were happening and we're experiencing the loss of family and all of these different kinds of losses that multiple, everybody in our community and our, in our world and our country are experiencing, we are entering into this space of knowing like we're all going through this, we're all experiencing this. And it's really the first time in one of the first times in, in recent history, especially for American um, Americans, really feeling and experiencing that same sense of collective grief that um, marginalized communities, I think, have felt for a really long time. Yeah, that leads me to my next question of thinking of, you know, the collective grief of what's happening right now and the pandemic is personally affecting everyone on some level, not all on yeah. the same levels, but on some level. And then I think about the first example you gave of someone of color, a black person being killed and that being mm -hmm. very highly publicized. And while it may not directly impact by having known that person, it affects large groups and populations and communities of people because of a connection. And so I wondered if you could talk a bit about, you know, what might be unique about collective grief for communities that hold marginalized identities. It's interesting because I know that even for my own self, walking through particularly this age and time that we're in, is coming to that sense of ourselves because we experience it, right? We're, we're, we're experiencing and feeling this sense of grief. But I think that we even sit in that place of, is this grief mine? Am I allowed to feel this grief, right? Um, <clears throat> because I don't personally know this person. How, what does it mean for me to sit and, and grieve the lives of, you know, Breonna Taylor? and grieve who, you know, an EMT who was killed in her home or grieve Ahmaud Arbery who was killed while out jogging or Tony McDade, a black trans man who was brutally gunned down. Like, what does it mean for me to grieve this constant threat of black people? And, and what it means to me is that recognizing that what we're grieving is not just the individual, it is absolutely the individual, but we're grieving our lack of safety at home, where we're grieving our lack of safety on the road, at the grocery store, in the schools, in the parks, and in, in our own in, in our own home, right? Uh, and so we're grieving victims that we don't know because they are they are part of our community, they're part of our family. And I think in black tradition in particular, we call each other family, their cousin, fam, unk, auntie. Um, and you know, they're not related to us that we're, we're kind of part of each other's family. And so there's this communal sense of family at, at the heart of it, but then they're also a representation of us. If this could happen to somebody like Breonna Taylor, or this can happen to somebody like Trayvon Martin, or this can happen to somebody like George Floyd, then it could happen, it could happen to me. 
Um, and that's really that, that extra layer of what it means. And I remember um, right after the verdict of Breonna Taylor, I was getting ready to go for my daily walk. I don't run, <laughs> but I walk. <laughs> I walk and, uh, you know, here in the Pacific Northwest, it, it rains frequently. And I remember just gearing up to go out for my, my walk. And, you know, I had a hoodie on and I had a hat on and, you know, I had my, my hood up, which I rarely do. And I just caught this glimpse of myself in the mirror. And I saw, okay, am I going to be safe? Right. I had that, that this gut check of, am I going to be okay? You can't see my, I had my mask on. You could have a hat on. I had a hood up. I was wearing all dark clothes. Um, and I was just thinking like, am I going to be safe? Is, is my black body going to be safe when I go out on this run? And it doesn't, in some ways, like it doesn't matter um, who I am. And that's the hard part, right? It doesn't matter that I, you know, have a doctorate in clinical psychology, that I give back to my community, that I'm involved in my church, that I mentor and I'm, you know, giving back to students and invest in the future of psychology. It doesn't matter that I do all of these things. When I leave my home, and again, in some cases, even when I don't leave my home, I'm not seen for all of those things. Those things aren't necessarily taken into account when I'm walking on my on the trails. What they see is a big woman, big black woman who has her face covered and a hoodie on. And what does that mean? And how am I perceived by that? And that's that sense. That's the those are the extra layers that come into what it means to experience collective grief, right? It's not just the individual, it's the meaning of how it impacts us individually as a person, because they're a representation, not only are they family, but they're a representation of us, what it means for us. When it comes to having the time, the space, and even the permission to grieve mm-hmm. or to acknowledge the effects of that trauma. How, how is that, the ability to have the time, space, and permission to grieve, how is that a racialized privilege? Yeah, there are a lot of intersecting pieces to how it's a racialized privilege, but there is this overall sense, both an internal, personal internal, and an external expectation for marginalized folks and people of color, BIPOC folks, to continue on, right? Continue to show up, continue to do their work, continue to perform at the same level or beyond um, their peers in order to be seen as the same as their peers, right? There's all of these pieces. And there's also, in particularly in the Black community, there's a sense of the trope of your strong Black woman, right? That you're strong. And because you're strong, you can keep going. You can do this. That sense goes into, it, it bleeds itself into everything. It bleeds itself into um, health disparities. It bleeds itself into disparities in treatment in, in medical systems around, um, you know, um, Black individuals get less pain care. Um, we have the highest 
um, infant mortality rate and maternal mortality rate because um, signs aren't taken as seriously as quickly because there's this idea, oh, well, you're strong so you can handle it rather than hearing what's happening to individuals. And so things get delayed and then we have these high mortality rates of mothers and babies. It goes to even this expectation that people have when they're grieve in the midst of their grief, that we have to forgive immediately. When it's rare that you see a, a, a black victim in the media that isn't almost immediately a story around how they've forgiven their perpetrator. It's rare that you see it the other way around, that it's a person of color and the white white person or a majority culture person is the story is around how they're forgiving that person. But almost always you see it the other way. And the, the, the story that I think of almost immediately is the, the Charleston victims with so quickly, the Charleston victims um, had this, the whole story around how they forgave Dylan Roof. Now don't, don't get me wrong, forgiveness is huge and it's helpful for the victims. It's, that's how, you know, it's a big part of what it means to move on and how to heal. But there's also this sense of there's an expectation that doesn't matter that I've harmed you, that this thing has happened, you're going to forgive me. And I'm expected I'm owed that forgiveness. And it's expected that it happens quickly rather than giving folks, particularly those that are marginalized, time to actually sit with and process and make sense of what had happened, what has just happened, what did they just experience, what is the loss that they've actually experienced, and I think that there's also a piece of this that's intergenerational trauma, right, that there's a, there's a sense that, um, you know, that's why I'm saying there's an internal piece and an external piece, there's an external piece from the community and our culture that reinforces this. And there's this internal piece that comes from years, um, generations that folks could not, were not given time. So if, even if you think back to slave times where you know families were separated and kids were sold off and, and things were happening, they didn't have the time and space. They, they were not offered that ability to grieve or think about what was going on. They had to continue to go on. And so there's this built-in sense generationally about not have not being able to. We don't, we can't, well, we just gotta, we gotta keep going, you know, and we keep pushing on. And so there's this internal sense that has been passed down generation to generation and then reinforced by a culture that says, oh, you're strong, you've got this, you don't, you're fine, right? And so then this bi-directional reinforcing of you don't have time, nor should you take time to actually process and make meaning of what's happening in your life. Even taking a mental health day to process and sit with all of the trauma that you've been witnessing and experiencing, whether it's directly to you or it is related to this collective grief and this collective trauma. You reminded me of a conversation I had with Julia Mallory, who's a, a poet and a mother whose son was killed. And she talks about don't rush people from grief to gratitude. And I was thinking like, okay, yeah. And don't rush people from grief and harm to forgiveness, which we see happening over and over again of like skipping the accountability step and going right to let's move on, let's unify, let's forgive. And interesting to hear how that gets reinforced culturally, 
politically and then internalized. And wondering for you, Amber, do you have a time that you can think of where you were really aware of that internalized piece for yourself of, I got to be strong, I got to move through this, I can't take time to process this loss or this experience? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's happened several times in my life, realizing after George Floyd, and I, you know, was a week of Breonna Taylor was in the news, Ahmaud Aubrey happened, and then days later, George Floyd happened. And I was teaching summer classes, and it was um, a class that was all about processing. I was teaching a group therapy class. <laughs> so it's a class where they were in groups and processing. And I just, I remember just showing up and even just before the class, like, okay, well, what do I do? I have three sections. I have classes this summer. It's not my family. And yet here I am holding this and I'm barely keeping it together. I am, I am falling apart. Um, I don't know what to do with myself and I'm, I'm tearful, I'm angry and I rarely get to angry. Um, I just not an angry person and, and I was just angry and I was so tearful. And I also felt this immense pressure to continue to, you know, hold classes as normal, to put on the face, to not only just put on the face and have class, but also hold everything for all of my students and have this space where they could process. And, you know, here in, in, in Oregon, in the Pacific Northwest and Portland metro area, most of my students are white. And so what they were experiencing and the things that were coming up for them was not the same sense of grief that I was experiencing, where we had folks that were really worried about the police officers and we would have folks that were worried about the political ramifications and there were all of these things and I was sitting here like I don't even know how to step outside the door right now I don't know if I'm safe in my home I can't go jogging I can't be protected by the police who who am I what am I feeling and here I am having to step into a classroom and hold and empathize and and care for all of these other people without even acknowledging where I am and how I'm feeling. I think that that's a space that happens frequently for BIPOC folks, let alone, not just right now, I think that is heightened in this time and space, let alone also, you know, that it's COVID is disproportionately impacting Black and Brown communities, that Black folks are the highest death rate. So not only the racialized pandemic, but this health pandemic that we're also the highest impacted by this and having to step into the space and still put on our happy face and hold the hold and answer questions and be there to support and make sense of our, make, make sense of things for, for the other. I noticed as you were talking, Amber, I was, every muscle in my body was tensing up thinking of you walking into this environment where you have this immense amount of grief and anger and rage. 
there's no place for you to get that acknowledged for from other folks. Like it might be if you walked into a, a group of peers, maybe you could get some of that acknowledged, maybe. But then you're in charge of helping <laughs> these students process what's happening for them. And they are, they're like almost having a different world <laughs> of experience with that. So, you know, it's actually, it's actually interesting, you know, that sense of tensing your whole body. And I keep, I keep coming back to, you know, George Floyd's last words, I can't breathe. It makes sense that there's a part of you even hearing that story that your whole body was tensing and maybe even holding your breath. Like I said, I keep coming back to it because I feel like that it's this phrase that captures the sense of what the experience of BIPOC folks are right now, it, what it is right now that it's like, I can't breathe, right? It's, it's this ongoing exposure to these traumas, ongoing um, connection to what's happening in our communities from a COVID perspective to the, you know, the high infant mortality and, and, and maternal mortality rates to, you know, all of these pieces to what it means for us to have to keep going and keep showing up and not it not being acknowledged that we're going through something right now and maybe that's different than other people are experiencing it that there's that that sense of like ah, i can't breathe and it really it's that crushing like all of a sudden hitting you like i've been we've been fine knowing how to do this knowing how to do this we got this we got this and then all of a sudden catching up to catching up to us like oh my gosh I can't breathe. Um, there's just so much. There's so much that's happening and I don't have space and I don't have a place to put it. And I'm disconnected from my community, from those who actually understand it, that I don't have to explain it to. I have no, no means of being able to see them and connect with them and to breathe with them. Now I have three questions I want to ask you at the same time. So let me see if I can roll them all together. Because <laughs> I was thinking about the idea of being physically cut off from people right now. I mean, mm -hmm. we're starting to have more vaccines. People are starting to have a little bit more in-person interaction. But for, you know, over a year, we haven't really been able to sit in the same room in close proximity with someone else and wondering physiologically and, and nervous system wise, like what changes for us when we can sit together and grieve in the same room? Yeah, um, there's lots of things that happen. You know, we have these mirror neurons and, and these mirror neurons work for lots of different things. But one of the things that we do is this kind of picking up on the energy of somebody else in your space, your physical space, that we actually feed off of each other physiologically when we're in person with one another. Now, you get some of that when you're in a virtual space, but it's not the same sense, right, that you get. I mean, even just being able to physically be in a space and sensing just if somebody's holding their breath or if they're breathing hard or, you know, these kind of micro movements that you that you can pick up on, all of that's being picked up on through these like mirror neurons and, and our like emotion processing center. And when we're cut off from that, all we have is 
again, our own, our own experience. And it's a lot harder to um, ground ourselves because we, we have this sense of this natural sense as, as individuals, as people to compare and to look to our environment to gauge where I'm at. Like, even if you think of a, of a kid, right? A, a kid's running and they fall down and then they, first thing that they do is they look at their parent, right? To say like, am I okay? <laughs> is this bad? Is this really bad? Is this, is this not a big deal, right? They kind of, you look to your environment to get clues around where, how I should be responding, right? Is this a bigger deal than I'm thinking that is, or is this not as big of a deal as I'm experiencing or what I think that it is, how I'm feeling right now? And so when we lose that, we have this really hard time of just physiologically managing our experience because we're, we're, we're grasping to make sense of what we're feeling. And we don't have a good placeholder because we don't have good environmental bearings of how is, for instance, how is my community handling this? Are we okay? Or are we struggling? What's, are we good? <laughs> are we good? Or this is a whole new world and no, we're not, but we can, we can work through it together for together. But we can't, it's harder to even know how to move what things that we need, what kinds of supports we need, because we're, we're not even clear on how we are, how we're physically doing, because we, we've lost touch of that kind of um, bi-directional feedback again, that bi-directional feedback of what's happening in our environment to give us clues to make sense of how I'm actually feeling. I was wondering too, what suggestions would you have for folks who, folks with marginalized identities who are dealing with collective grief and it's taking a toll? Like what suggestions would you have for them to attend to their physical and their mental and their emotional and their sort of psychic reactions and, and the toll it's taking? Yeah. Um, I think the first thing there's um, this, doctor. His name is um, Dr. Robert Niemeyer. He's actually the director of Portland Institute for Loss and Transition. He says, um, name it and claim it, <laughs> which is actually funny. I, I'm assuming that it's coming out of a church tradition, but out of my tradition, out of a, a church tradition, name it and claim it is, is a term that we use often. But I think that it's so wise to apply it in this sense of there's something freeing about acknowledging. There's so much power in just simply acknowledging that, hey, there is a lot happening. There's so much going on and I am impacted by it. And not to kind of put it off, oh, I just haven't been feeling good or, oh, I've just been really tired. Well, no, y yes, you are. You, yes, you're not feeling good. Yes, you're really tired. Yes, you might have, you know, other physical symptoms. You might have sleep disturbances, you might have all of these other things. And it's all related, likely related to this trauma, this grief, all of the things that you're holding um, that's kind of coming out in these other ways. So being able to first name it and then claim it so that you can actually move forward and be able to tend to it is really, really wise. 
And then I, I came up with, I'm all about acronyms. You know, I work with a lot of kids and I, I, I like to put it on that it's because I work with kids, but it's also because the way that I can remember things <laughs> more than anything, it's to help me remember what I want to say. Um, but the acronym that I, I use is um, safety. And we're in a time where we're experiencing and have experienced harm. And so how do we create a safety plan for us? And so what it stands for is S is self-care, taking the time to actually tend to your body, making sure that you're getting eating <laughs> and hydrated, that you are tending to your sleep, um, that you're tending to making sure that you're doing physical exercise, like some of those like really, really basic lifestyle strategies that you actually are making a plan for them. Um, so that's S. A stands for ask for help. Being able to say like, I don't have to do this on alone, um, all alone, and I shouldn't be doing this alone. And I can ask for help. I can, whether that's leaning into therapy or that is asking for help at work, taking a day, being able to ask for help by asking for a day off for a mental health day to just kind of recover and tend to yourself. F stands for find community. Again, we're not alone and we need our community. If anything out of all of what this year has been from um, a racial pandemic and a large pandemic for all of us, if, if anything we've learned is that we need each other and we need our community and the being isolated and cut off from each other um, is is harmful to our well-being, right? And particularly for our BIPOC folks that we need to be in community with others who understand and have experience and can sit in and be that sounding board, be that not only holding place for you, but also a place for you to see how are we doing? What is our what what is our experience of this collective grief right now? So find Find community. E stands for engage in social justice activism. Um, so again, those things that we feel out of control, finding those places where we can engage in large and small ways of how can I um, engage in ways that are making sense for me, that create social justice, sense of, a sense of justice for myself. Because I think that those are some of the things that really tie into what makes us that fuels all of the emotions, whether that's anger or sadness or all of the emotions that kind of are wrapped up in all of what's going on, finding ways that we can find a sense of, of justice in our own life. What, even if that's, you know, supporting Black, um, Black-owned businesses or, you know, being part of different organized groups, whatever that looks like for you, but finding that place, that outlet where you're able to engage and connect to a sense of justice, where you can get that sense of justice. Um, T stands for tend to your whole essence. When we're going through things, particularly things that are racialized, it ends up being that we focus so much on that one thing or that one part of our identity that we lose track of the rest of ourselves. I'm not just a Black woman, right? Like I'm a professor and I'm a daughter and I'm a sister, you know, and I like to be creative and I like all of these other things. And when I'm 
in that space and life gets narrowed and focuses in so much on just the singular identity that I lose out on the whole wholeness of who I am. And then the last one is why. Um, and why was hard as far as for the, for the acronym, <laughs> but the way that I say it is yank the plug. Um, so finding ways to disconnect and engage in mindful isolation. So when I say mindful isolation, it's not isolating yourself from, from other people, but saying like, I'm going to take a break from social media. I'm taking a break from the news. I'm taking a break from these things because that overexposure re-traumatizes you every single time that you are are exposed to it. And so finding those times where you mindfully disconnect and say, I'm not going to attend to that right now. I'm going to take time for myself. I'm going to engage in some of these other pieces of the safety plan um, in order to reground myself and re, um, reconnect with even my me me, my, me, myself, and I. Um, so that would be, that would be what I would say. So self-care, ask for help, find community, engage in some social justice activism, tend to your whole essence, and yank the plug to disconnect um, and find that mindful isolation. I love that, Amber. That's the most well-balanced safety plan I think I've ever heard of. So thank you for sharing that with me. I was taking notes in my mind. I need to do more of this. I need to do a little less of that. Um, and also for that gift to, to our listeners as well. So speaking of safety plans and things that are attending to our whole selves, what are, two, what are the top two things that have been helping you in this last year? Yeah. I think for me, it has been finding community has been the most helpful thing. Of course, my family, leaning into my family, which is, um, I have a I'm really, really close to my family and super, super supportive. And so um, being able to lean into processing and holding and being with them and also being able to find community. And, and that was hard, especially again, in the midst of a pandemic, but also being in the Pacific Northwest, which is a space in Portland, being um, you know the widest urban center in the United States, it's not easy to come by finding community that looks like me. Um, and so I had to be really intentional about it, but I have found folks and we meet uh, on Zoom regularly. And man, I, I didn't know how much I needed it until I had it and being able to step into that space. And again, that sense of just being able to breathe. Again, that acknowledgement of it really was holding my breath. I haven't been able to breathe for a while and I am being able to breathe in this space. And that has meant so much. I have multiple different um, communities. I have, a, I have a diversity book club. I have a group that is specifically for um, counselors and psychologists kind of navigating the racial pandemic. I have another group that is other professionals and um, I have a group that's church group that's BIPOC folks. So I have multiple of them and they tend to different parts of my ident identities, my intersectional identities, but needing that and leaning into the community has been super, super helpful. And the second has been that tending to my body um, because we, when we're stressed, when we're experiencing things we do, we hold it 
we hold it in our body, our muscles tense. <laughs> we we um, have all kinds of issues with our sleep and, and you know, comes out in so many different ways, physically, physiologically. And so really being able to say, I don't know what I have to give, but I need to be doing something where I'm getting out of my house <laughs> and doing something that's just for me. And so that's when I started my walks that I was talking about and, you know, anywhere from 30 minute to two hour walks. And I just don't have any agenda other than to just be outside, um, not for the purpose of exercise, not for the purposes of losing weight, not for the purposes of anything, but to just be out and to listen to music, listen to podcasts and to connect to the ground and to nature. And there's something about just like breathing the fresh air and having my feet on the ground <laughs> and around trees that just is so um, refreshing and life-giving. Well, I appreciate you taking time today to share with me and with our listeners about your work, about the intersection of your work and your personal experience, and about really tangible suggestions for how people listening can be taking care of themselves in the face of collective grief and specifically for folks with marginalized identities carrying that collective grief. So Dr. Nelson, just really grateful for your time today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And listeners out there, thank you so much for being part of our community, for tuning in, for sharing the episodes with people that you think might be helped by them, for reaching out to me and telling me what the show means to you. You can email me at griefoutloud at dougie.org. That's D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. Our website, D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G, is also where you'll find all of our past episodes, um, as well as wherever you are currently listening to this podcast. So thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.